all, you can't really talk about the early second wave of the women's movement without talking about This is a WLRN extended interview. On July 1st, 2020, WLRN's Danielle Whitaker spoke with Abigail Schreier about her new book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Ms. Schreier holds degrees from Columbia University, the University of Oxford, and Yale Law School, and is a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal. For this book, she conducted nearly 200 interviews with trans-identified females, their parents, doctors, trans activists, and detransitioners to understand the dangers behind the trans phenomenon and why this movement has become so prevalent among young women and girls. So could, could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself, your background you know, as a writer, and what kind of led you into exploring this topic? Sure. I'm a, I'm a journalist. Um, I write most often for the Wall Street Journal. And, um, you know, I wrote an op-ed for them in January of, not this past January, but the one before, I guess that would be 2019, about um, gender pronoun laws, laws that assign criminal penalties if you misgender someone or don't use their pronouns. And these are straightforwardly unconstitutional. In America, the government can't make you say things. So I wrote that. And uh, a reader wrote to me and said, listen, this is what happened to my daughter. Can you please take up this issue? Interesting. So yeah, you mentioned the pronouns. Um, I was going to ask, how did you decide what pronouns and terms to use for the people that you interviewed in your book? Like, did you always use their individual preferences? Or did you kind of go with the words you felt were more appropriate or accurate? So I gave a little disclaimer about that in the beginning. And the disclaimer is that I don't think teenagers are the same as adults. So the girls, the young teenage girls caught up in this, um, uh, this this craze or this social contagion, I don't refer to as he. I think it would be too confusing. And at any rate, way they they really are children in in a, in a very important sense. These are not fully formed adults, but a transgender adults who I interviewed, by and large, I referred to almost uniformly whatever by whatever pronouns they prefer. You know, as a courtesy, and you know, I have no problem doing that. Um, but I, 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 the only time I made an exception to that was where I thought it was really getting confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be confusing. <laughs> I think a lot of times that's the point. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's exactly so, uh, right. <laughs> and, you know, as we see this movement in the media at large, it's, it's primarily spearheaded and represented, lobbied for by men who are identifying as women. I mean, primarily privileged, you know, heterosexual white men. So, as a feminist, you know, I see the trans experience and the motivating factors to be very different for females and for males. So could you describe kind of what inspired you to focus specifically on the experience of young women and girls and, you know, what similarities or differences do you see between the two sexes in this movement? You gave me so much to talk about um, that there's, you know, a lot of good stuff there. Um, I focus on girls because I was one and I actually started out my, my initial, um, uh, pitch that I had written to my agent was about, was to write a contemporary book about how young women were doing. And it was supposed to be a feminist, sort of feminist update on how young women were doing. And that's when I, I came to this topic and I realized they were doing a lot worse than I thought. Um, mm. I think you're absolutely right. Why men, biological men should have something to say, and they are the dominant activists in this group, why they should have something to say about the bodies of young girls. I don't understand. 
Yeah. And I think that's, that's part of what I think is making people, I guess the term we use is peak sort of come to realize that all the craziness of, of what they're saying. And it's, I think that's what makes people realize this is primarily a, a men's rights movement. I mean, is that kind of how you see it as well? You know, uh, the, the transgender, so the activist movement, I don't know what you have. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think that you have a collection of lots of different people. You have some genuine transgender people. And I, and I interview a lot of very, very nice people in my book um, who are transgender adults who really came to this through a sober process and are very, very rational people. And then you have the activist extre extremists, and they really run the gamut to insane, <laughs> from insane to deliberately trying to harm women. And, and then there must be, be be some you know sincere people mixed in. But um, but but I do say this this activist group is is really something. <laughs> Yeah. So how, how do you personally define, you know, someone who's really transgender or, you know, transgenderism as a concept or, you know, transphobia, since it seems like nowadays anything that you say against any of them about anything is, is transphobia. And there's this whole discussion of who's really trans versus who's just, you know, following a trend. I mean, how do you define those terms? It seems like they well, kind of rely on on keeping the terms vague in order to further their agenda. They absolutely do. So I, I try to talk in terms of gender dysphoria because that's a real thing. We have a hundred year diagnostic history and it's something that always afflicted young males and it always began in early childhood predominantly. OK, mm -hmm. so we we knew what it was. It had symptoms. It was it was severe. It was a real distress. And, and it was little boys who showed a constant, you know, they say insistent, consistent, persistent real discomfort in their biological sex. What we're seeing now with these, you know, transgender identified, these biological girls, teenage girls with no childhood history and of gender dysphoria is a totally different phenomenon. It doesn't look like gender dysphoria. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, from what I've seen, the, the young girls seem to be motivated by the desire to sort of escape this femininity that's imposed on them and the way that the world sees them as women, you know, the sort of the secondary sex, whereas most, you know, trans identifying males seem to be motivated by something else. It's more of either a fetish or it, it seems to be there. There's definitely seems to be more misogyny involved in the way that they're they're pursuing this. Is that kind of yeah, the scene? Well, the girls, the young girls, what they're focused on is not what girls with um, the rare number of girls, the small number of girls who had genuine gender dysphoria, they were really trying to pass. I mean, you think about Boys Don't Cry and movies like that. There were mm -hmm. examples of this, and they were really trying to pass. What these girls are are, are very different. They don't actually want to be men. They never, almost never pursue phalloplasty. It's very rare, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want to seem like men. What they want to be is to escape womanhood. And very often they'll try to be non-binary. They want to be an intermediate stage. But they don't exactly want to be a man. All that they know is they don't want to be a woman. Yeah. I think, honestly, I think any woman can relate to feeling that way at some point in, in our lives. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's a very, very normal feeling. And unfortunately, it's just been taken too far. And I do think at least part of the problem is they don't know how wonderful it is to be a woman. Um, and, and, and I think what you, what you said is right. They're getting these hyper-feminized images. And one of the things they're getting is really violent pornography. 
Mm-hmm. They think being a woman means being brutalized. Yeah. Um, there's so much internet porn and they're seeing it so young and it's so violent. Yeah, I mean, that is, you know, as radical feminists, that's one of, you know, porn and the prostitution and the sex trafficking and the sex industry and all that is one of the, you know, our areas, our main areas of focus. So I think that that all plays into it. I mean, you know, if you look at the root cause of what's what's leading to this gender dysphoria or this this complete agony over their biological sex, it, it seems to all come down to the root of how women are perceived in society, which is, you know, that sex-based oppression that we're not allowed to talk about now, apparently. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what I, you know, uh, two things. One, people need to understand, I think, because I didn't used to be so anti-porn as I am now, because, Mm -hmm. you know, you think about the images of Playboy and you wonder, I don't know. It doesn't seem that harmful necessarily. The, people need to understand that the violent porn that's available to children on the internet is so vile and so frightening to a young girl. It is so damaging, and it's you know they they imagine this sort of you know a stayed pages of of a new of a magazine. It's nothing like that. It's mm-hmm. so much more damaging. Um, but, but I will say this also is that is, um, you know, I don't think it's just women in society. I actually think a lot of it is women on social media, the images on social media and the discussion of women and the tearing down of women on social media really rattles these girls. Yeah. I mean, even as an adult, I mean, I'm in my late thirties now. And if I spend too much time on social media, you know, it can be depressing. It causes anxiety. I mean, it's, it's just completely messed with the way that we perceive the world, I think, and the way we perceive other people and ourselves and this constant sort of comparison. Um, I mean, yeah, it can be, it can be very toxic. So it makes sense that kind of this whole, you know, trans phenomenon for these young girls sort of coincides with the onset of social media and and the increased popularity. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you said that because, you know, I've been interviewed by a lot of men and when I bring up social media, they seem a little mystified. Um, like, why, why is it so bad for young girls? And I think part of it is, you know, they're much less empathetic. They're much less socially aware in the same way that women are. Women naturally, especially in adolescence, we compare each ourselves to each other. We compare our bodies to each other. That's a mm-hmm. very sort of normal inclination. And when we see each other torn apart on social media, it affects us in ways that I don't think it affects young boys at all um, in the same way. That's not to say it doesn't, you know, social media isn't bad for them too, but but it's really a destructive force for young women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think social media also, you know, the internet in general, just that the way that the last couple generations have been raised is there's this idea of an escape in the internet, um, you know, f- fandom culture, finding people who have the same interests as you and the same sort of teenage obsessions. And I think that kind of can coincide with with the way that they're viewing, you know, tra- transgenderism, They almost treat it as another one of these obsessions. And I know you talked a lot in your book about anorexia. So that's, can, can you kind of explore like the, the connection that you made between that and how you, how you came to see the similarities between the two movements? 
Sure. I mean, so anorexia is a social contagion. This was something that Lisa Littman, the public health researcher, noticed that it that that this transgender identity seemed to be very similar to among teenage girls, very similar to anorexia in that it was the same demographic. It was girls in distress. It was girls sharing each other's pain. Girls convincing themselves of symptoms, for instance, you know, oh, I'm so fat or, oh, I'm so dysphoric and and really spreading it in very much the same way over the Internet with these motivational, you know, um, influencers who motivate them to greater and greater self-harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what do you what do you think is the most important thing that we can do or number of things we can do, you know, as activists to, to try to draw young women and girls away from, from this, I mean, what is essentially a sort of ideological cult and try to, you know, encourage them out of that. You know what? I think one of the biggest ways, and this is really funny, but I don't think it necessarily needs to be, it should be countered with, with, you know, correct science and things, you know, biological sex and what else and, and what have you. But but I also think it needs to be countered with in-person friendships. These girls need their girlfriends. They yeah. need to spend time with them in person without their phones. They need yeah. to like hug and and share things and write in their diaries all the things they're not doing today because they need to know that they're not alone. And when they, instead of telling their girlfriends all their secrets and all their pains, when they take it to the internet, they're taking it to a very dark and very disturbed place. That's not where you want your daughter to get her answers from. It's true. And, you know, on the internet, you can, you can be pretty much whatever you want. You can present yourself as whatever you want in order to get what, whatever kind of reaction or attention you want. And it seems like that has sort of carried over into their perception of reality in some way. That's, that's right. You connected to fandom, and I think that's exactly right. People don't realize that. It really is escapist, but it's also about self-alienation. It's really about alien, these girls steeping themselves and becoming more and more alienated from who they are and alienated from their bodies. And we need to get them away from that. Yeah. You are listening to WLRN. So your book, your book comes out this week. Is that right? Yeah, it came out on uh, Tuesday, yesterday. Yeah. So and I actually, I read something and I've, I saw that maybe somebody said it wasn't true or it was, I'm not sure, but I, I read that Amazon banned an ad for it. Is that true? Yes, it did. Oh, wow. <laughs> you're allowed to you're allowed to sponsor ads promoting teenage girls with no history of gender dysphoria, no childhood history to medically transition. That's all over. They have tons of sponsored ads for books like that. Of but course. for a book that's skeptical of that, a book a book that suggests maybe this isn't a good thing for young women, that that gets banned. That does not get a sponsored ad. <laughs> yeah. What what other sort of have you had any other experiences, you know, with the backlash, sort of the no, you know, silencing, no platforming, thought policing, like what has the yeah. reaction been? Sure. So there's a big um, effort underway to get my publisher to drop me. There's been a big concerted effort. And, um, you know, people ask why I went with a conservative publisher uh, on this because it's not a conservative book. It's I left politics out of it because I really don't think this book is about politics. It's about how young women are doing. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I went with a publisher that was willing to stand by me. 
And today, that's not something you can take for granted. I have watched so many publishers drop authors on controversial topics, and there's a major campaign right now. So I'm very grateful to my publisher for standing by me. Yeah, I think that's that's something a lot of the the feminist organizations like Women's Liberation Front, they've encountered that the only, you know, media and sources willing to sort of give them a platform to speak are more conservative publications and organizations. Um, and it's not that, you know, we align with, with their ideas on, you know, feminism or, you know, other ideas that they have or other opinions, but it seems like on this particular topic, even though they may be coming from a different perspective, it's, they're the only ones who are willing to let us speak, even if they don't also don't necessarily agree with everything that we say, but it seems like it's, it's really the only option, it seems. And, and I think it's important to, to take that route when, when you find common cause with someone, because young girls are hurting themselves. They're hurting yeah. themselves in irreparable ways. Like that's, that's just a huge red flag. So if someone's willing to get, talk to you about it and, and work together with you, I just think there's just too much at risk not to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if you saw recently uh, um, sort of this, I guess you would call it maybe an expose or at least a sort of a, an overview of um, what's going on with Tavistock, which is the, you know, the yes. gender clinic in the UK. And I think it was on BBC was actually talking about how, you know, they've uncovered all these documents and, you know, testimonies from former doctors who worked there about how, you know, they've been promoting this sort of gender transition as, you know, conversion therapy because, you know, we have these conservative parents coming in saying, oh, I'd rather have a trans son than a lesbian daughter. I mean, how how do you how do we approach that? Because that's, you know, that's obviously not really the stance that your book is taking or that I would take as a feminist because we're we're pretty much the opposite of that. So how do you right. how do you address that stance? So um couple of things. So I was able to interview one of the um, men who, um, wonderful guy, Marcus Evans, who resigned from the Tavistock Clinic over the, the, the stuff that came out of that clinic, showing that these girls were not being helped by puberty blockers and they were being fast-tracked. Um, you know, it's interesting. You say it's conservative parents, but by and large, the, the, the parents that I deal with are mostly progressive, even the ones who are uncomfortable with homosexuality. So in other words, they're more comfortable with it um, than, I mean, it's, it, there seems to be a real discomfort with it, you know, among some people, and I can't say I understand this, but for some reason they think transition is somehow easier for them to accept. I don't pretend to understand where this is coming from. Yeah, I guess to me, it's the way I see the whole I, trans ideology is that it's actually reinforcing, you know, regressive gender roles because it's saying, yeah. well, if you like pink, you're a girl, if you like blue, right. you know, that kind of thing. So it seems like that's so ingrained in our culture that people would be more comfortable with, with some sort of ideology that, that, you know, sticks to that in a sort of flip-flop reversed way than, you know, addressing maybe they have a gay kid, which is still, you know, homophobia is still rampant across society. So I, to me, that's right. how I see it. Well, I'll tell you though. Um, so the, the, it's, it's interesting because, you know, look, I'm, I'm Gen X, I'm at the end of Gen X. And honestly, we have not raised our kids with these, you know, completely anachronistic stereotypes, right? These completely outdated stereotypes. So mm -hmm. 
I don't know that society, I mean, does society really tell girls that they can't play with trucks anymore? I know that gender ideologues in schools are teaching that because they have to introduce these archaic stereotypes in order to discuss gender. But I, I don't see it being pushed as much on anybody else. And I think that's part of the reason that these gender ideologues have to teach it in the public school is that many of these kids have never heard of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely, I mean, in terms of pushing gender roles on kids, it's definitely a lot better than it was, you know, 50 years ago. Um, yeah. But I think, as, as you said, now with, with social media, it's, and, you know, things like Instagram beauty culture, yeah. and the anorexia, yeah. you know, on, you know, things sites yeah. like Tumblr, and there's, there's sort of a whole new, I guess, a new generation of, I guess you would call it gender roles, because it is more, most targeted at, at girls. So, you know, even though feminism has made a lot of strides in a lot of ways, it seems like it, this is regressing. Part of the, the sort of violent, pornified culture that you talked about as well is just things are, are actually regressing in a lot of ways for women. It's just being reframed as like, oh, it's, you know, if you choose it, then it's an empowering choice, that kind of thing. I think you're right. I think you really nailed it when you said it's coming from the internet and the social media sites, because that is where you get these bizarre um, airbrushed images of hyper, hyper feminized girls. And mm -hmm. and it's funny because when I interview teenage girls, I ask them and they say, well, I didn't feel perfectly feminine. And I would say to them, but who's perfectly feminine? Like, look around society. There are women occupying every role. What are you talking about? And very often what it would, would come out is they were talking about stars on the Internet. They weren't mm -hmm. talking about in the real world. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, I mean, the timing of, seems to be so timing for your book seems to be perfect, considering, you know, the recent headlines and backlash over J.K. Rowling, which I'm sure you've read about and you've you know, seeing what's what's happened with her and everything that she's come out with. Is that is that right? Yeah, it's it's really shocking. You know, she I, I think what she did was wonderful. I think it was very brave and very important in standing up for women and girls because women have suffered just and young women as feel this, I think a terrible demotion in society. We are watching mediocre biological boys outcompete them and take their trophies. These are our best young women. We are watching them, biological males, force themselves into their locker rooms. And when they complain, they're told, sorry, that's our policy. These, these young girls notice. They notice they've been demoted in the broader culture. And, you know, J.K. Rowling brought up the fact that this is not a safe way, this is not a safe future for young women. And I really think, you know, it took a lot for her to say, a lot of courage for her to say that because she had everything to lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I really admire it. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a lot of women have been coming out, at least, you know, in, from what I've seen on the internet, women who have been silent up to this point are starting to speak out and starting to have the courage to speak out. So it seems like maybe there's a chance that, you know, the tides could be turning. Although on the flip side, the backlash against her has, you know, been pretty powerful as well. I mean, what what impact do you think it'll have on on this whole movement, the whole phenomenon to see someone that famous, you know, come out with something like that? 
It's scary. I mean, think about Martina Navratilova, this yeah. remarkable athlete, this remarkable woman who was probably the proudest and finest openly lesbian athlete America had seen. And we were so proud of her. And all she said was, when biological boys are competing with girls, it's not fair. And mm -hmm. athlete ally dropped her, her sponsor. Her sponsor said she was anti-LGBTQ. And every young girl saw that and said, if they can take down Martina, I don't have a chance. Yeah. Yeah, we, we did a, um, I actually wrote uh, an article with WLRN last year all about the whole males and women's sports phenomenon. And just, you know, people have this perception that, oh, well, if they go on testosterone or if they go on estrogen for a few months, then they're basically the same as women. And, you know, so a lot of my research was breaking down exactly all of the physical, you know, biological differences between males and females and how it will never be equal. It will never be fair for them to just march in. And I mean, the, the results show that, obviously. I mean, they're outperforming women everywhere that they invade, essentially. Yeah, and, and I think it comes from profound ignorance. Our science is so politicized that people are just so ignorant today. I mean, the body is so, after after men enjoy the enormous advantage of testosterone during puberty, their bodies are so different. They have so much more muscle f mass and fast twitch muscle fiber and stronger bones and more oxygenated blood and larger lungs. Women don't have a chance. And the idea you can give them a few shots of estrogen and equal it out is ludicrous. It is. And that's such a that's such an important thing that you mentioned is that science is politicized. And that's I think that's the scariest thing about all of this and about, you know, all the other aspects where science is ignored in favor of, you know, people's feelings like, you know, the flat earthers and <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 scary to think that that's that, that science can be so controversial nowadays. I mean, imagine this. They teach gender ideology. So I did a whole exploration of the California public school system. They teach gender ideology right alongside sexual health and sexually transmitted disease. So they will teach you things like sexually transmitted disease can be transmitted through, you know, intercourse and you should use a condom and um, a person can choose their gender. And just because a doctor assigned you a gender at birth doesn't mean that's who you really are. All of this gibberish is being taught alongside science. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's <laughs> I don't really understand it. I guess I've I've kind of always been the type where you know you read something new, you hear new facts, new information, and you're like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna change the the way that I think about this because I don't want to be ignorant anymore. But I know that for a lot of people, they want to cling to to what's comfortable to them, and I think that's really dangerous. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, I think we really need to take a really hard look at, at a lot of this social media and a lot of the ideology that's being pumped into our young youth and, and take a, a really skeptical look about whether we're doing them more harm than good. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, actually, those are all the questions that I had. Um, but if, you know, if there's anything else that you wanted to bring up or anything else you want our listeners to know, please feel free. I would just like to give them hope. You know, young women go through such a hard time during adolescence. We all do. It's very confusing. And I just, I've followed a lot of these girls and their stories and there is hope. Don't lose hope. They do come back. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would say stay in touch with your daughters. Don't let, you know, don't let them completely cut off from you if you can help it. And if, if they're going through this period of confusion, don't, don't, don't think you've lost them for good. Yeah, that's very, that's very good advice. Thank you. Um, Thank you. So, well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I appreciate you speaking with me so much. This is, I mean, I loved reading your book. Oh, thank you. I think it's really time that we we see books like this coming out. I mean, and it's, you know, it's hard, like, as you mentioned, to find people willing to publish them. And I know J.K. Rowling's publisher has had, you know, a lot of complaints. There's people trying to get her dropped. And <laughs> it's just funny because, you know, it's you think, well, you can't cancel someone who's that who's that big. But it's 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 tough out there. So. It's just unbelievable. We're sending a message to our children that if you don't like what someone says, you you get them thrown out. You don't, you know, you don't argue with them. You don't present your facts. You don't present your evidence. You just get them canceled. Yes. It's crazy. And this is why I, I honestly wish debate skills were like a, a mandatory class in high school, you know, <laughs> because they're, they're teaching, you know, these kids are, have this idea that, you can't engage with anyone who disagrees with you on anything. You just have to shut them out and, and live in your bubble. And it's like, that's, that's not the real world. You can't get through life that way. So. Yeah. And, and also what people, what I, what I think is it's so reductive because you know what people can be, you know, irrational about one thing or wrong about something and wonderful in other ways. And right. learning to live with each other is really important. It's true. Yeah. Nobody's right about everything. That's for sure. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's well, great to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you again. It's great to talk to you as well. Thanks for tuning in to my interview with Abigail Schreier, author of the new book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters, now available for purchase. To learn more about WLRN and to support our efforts, please visit our website at wlrnmedia.wordpress.com.